Hello and welcome to this special episode of Political Agenda, brought to you by New Narrative. I'm PJ Tham. The legend and myth of Lee Kuan Yew looms large, not just over Singapore, but over the many countries around the world which aspire to emulate his achievements. But who is Lee Kuan Yew and what exactly did he accomplish? The very first book to try to tackle Lee using a rigorous, research-based approach was James Minchin's No Man is an Island, a Portrait of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew. As a researcher, Minchin was given incredible access to the upper echelons of Singapore's elite. He interviewed cabinet ministers, senior officials, close associates and former adversaries of Lee, both in Singapore and Malaysia. When the book came out in 1986, it was revelatory, detailing both Lee's spectacular successes and his serious failures, including his misjudgments, his abuses of power, his shabby treatment of his colleagues, and his dangerous dependence on prescription drugs, which impaired his judgment at a critical time. Minchin's portrait was not challenged by Lee, but the book is next to impossible to find in Singapore, and years later Minchin himself was banned from entering Singapore. He remains banned to this day. On 15th November 2018, I sat down with Jim on one of his frequent visits to Kuala Lumpur. We spoke about his life in Singapore, his experience writing the book, his ban from Singapore, and his reflections on Singapore's politics today. So, thanks Jim. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Uh, and thank you for agreeing to an interview, a new narrative. Pleasure. So, uh, you wrote No Man is an Island, and you published it back in 1986. It's, that's, first of all, it's a curious title. How did you come up with the title? I started uh, this project back in uh, 1971, just after I returned from my three years in Singapore. I tried to stay on longer, but uh, at the time I was having a little bit of a difficulty with the Bishop of uh, Singapore, who regarded my, some of my views as a bit outré. So I... For, for the benefit of our audience then, um, you were a priest in Singapore for yeah. three years. Yeah. I was appointed to the staff of St Andrew's Cathedral, but by a variety of circumstances, I came quickly to work in Alexandra, in a church, uh, a daughter church of the cathedral, our Saviour's Church, as it then was located, and I lived there. But I also had a lot of involvement with hospital ministry, and I set up an ecumenical university chaplaincy at the then University of Singapore in Bukatima which brought me into contact also through my musical interest in a whole range of people that I wouldn't have met had I remained simply within the cathedral or parish uh, circumstances. Right, so then you left Singapore mm -hmm. in 71, yep. but you started the book project then. Yeah, just uh, in 72 really, I, w when I came back I was still, I found it very difficult to settle back in Melbourne because Singapore was for me, uh, entry into a new world, which I hadn't begun to think seriously about in my whole time up to that point. And uh, I was astonished by the speed of social engineering that was going on, the abolition of pirate taxis, the development of the new housing estates. Uh, Bukit Ho Swee was just near me, and that was the first of the PAP government's uh, housing estates, and a very controversial one. And then uh, Queenstown, was in progress. I saw Tuapayo when it was still a market garden. I used to visit a friend at Thompson Road Hospital and see gradual 
yeah. development of Tuapai, a very rapid development. So, and the bringing of the hawkers into uh, sort of centrally located places, the, the whole face of Singapore was being changed, and that intrigued me. And also, you were there at a very contentious time because when you first arrived, we technically were still a multi-party democracy, mm. right? It was until I think it was late '68 elections, and the PAP won a clean sweep. Mm. And uh, after that, you know, it was um, single party. Mm. Um, well, I don't know if democracy is, is the right word after that, but it was single party rule. And, and then there were also uh, protests against the Vietnam War that also mm. occurred around then, right? So this was a very interesting period that you happened yeah. to arrive in Singapore. I preached in the cathedral one night in the presence of the American ambassador, and I voiced some contentious uh, views on the matter. In, in my sermon, and the dean of the cathedral apologized. Well, not really an apology, but he just said the views expressed from the pulpit tonight are the views of the speaker and not necessarily <laughs> of the whole Anglican communion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to placate the American ambassador, who's. I didn't know he was in the congregation, I found out later. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess he was the. What Americans call Episcopalian? That's the mm. equivalent of that, right? Yeah. A lot of American diplomatic figures came out of Episcopalian background, but whether or not, because St Andrews was the uh, the kind of church of the former of the British uh, rulers, it it had a kind of standing in diplomatic circles as a place to be. Okay, so um, you're in Singapore during this incredibly transformative time. Then you you finish. And I, I guess it's like a three-year contract and you mm. finish and you go home. And then you decide to write a book about Singapore. No, I decided to, to do some exploration okay. about what I'd encountered. The other big factor that influenced me quite a lot pers personally was the introduction of national service in 1967 because I had a number of youngsters in my parish, particularly in Alexandra, who came out of, uh, had been from Anglo-Chinese school and other places and they'd been exposed to Christianity through a crusade, a big crusade in 68 and uh, they, quite a number of them came to, to the church in the sort of follow-up to their crusade and uh, I got to see them and learn a bit about the circumstances of national service which struck me as anomalous given the history of the Wachau in uh, different countries of Southeast Asia. It was a new development. So that was a that played quite a big part because seeing these young guys who never thought of themselves doing national service but now uh, having to do so it was quite a significant psychological change and it, it it had more impact on me I think than the fact of the the clean sweep in the elections. So the, then you decided to start researching. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't initially a book. No, it was. A, it was to, I decided. And I've, uh, afterwards I laugh at what happened, but I decided I'd undertake a master's thesis. And uh, by then, as things, as 1972 went on, it became very evident to me that there were two people masterminding this uh, process of social engineering. Uh, one was Lee Kuan Yew, and the other was Gorking Sui, the then finance minister. And anyway, in, in that process, Gore was obviously operating out of fairly conventional pol politics and economics, derived from his uh, time at the London School of Economics, fairly conventional. 
but the views being expressed about Singapore's place in the world and who its friends were and all that sort of thing had very strange characteristics for me coming out of a reasonably liberal democratic expression of life. I'd not been terribly political, but in general had fairly left-wing views, but of a liberal kind uh, from Australia. And when it became clear that these two were the key figures, and I looked more carefully, I decided it would be much more interesting for me to write about Lee Kuan Yew, because he was clearly intent on making over a nation, a whole group of people, and what he regarded previously as a political absurdity, a, a tiny island like Singapore having a nation-state uh, capacity. Yeah, very artificial. Mm. You know, historically, we're part of Johor, we're part mm. of Malaya, mm. and mm. suddenly we're on our own. And mm. I think the government has focused very much on the economic argument, but they have left uh, aside, they just neglect the sort of social-cultural uh, aspect to our separation, mm. Mm. right? That people didn't see or think of themselves as Singaporean and this identity being somehow distinct from the rest of Malaya. We were supposed to be one country, one nation. One of the most significant developments in my life has been the experience of uh, Chinese particularly, but also of Indian and to a lesser extent Malay friendships. Uh, in the early days when I came, there was uh, my first visit was to uh, uh, Malaysia, was in West Malaysia, was in 1968 in April, just three months after I'd arrived in Singapore. And it was virtually indistinguishable, the, the whole the cultural cues, all the attitudes towards life. There was some recognition of significant differences emerging. But now, nowadays, it feels as if Singapore and Malaysia are really quite alien to one another in all sorts of ways. I don't think profoundly in all respects, but certainly on the surface, it's very striking. So uh, to come back to your project mm. then, so you wanted to understand this transformation mm. and then you, you signed up for the Masters. Mm. And is that the genesis of the mm. book then? The Masters I titled eventually from one of the finest poems written about Singapore, my country and my people, Patriot of the Will. And it's a little bit of a disparaging reference in Lisa Peng's poem because people most to be feared are those who are patriots of their own willpower, their own will, and they shape a society or they shape life around them, whether it's a family or a bigger unit, according to what's going on in their own will, their own uh, determination. So it's a very clever, it's a wonderful poem, as most of Lisa Peng's work, and uh, I, I took my title from that. But uh, it was far too obscure uh, for yeah. once I made the transition. So the, the decision to write a book came only after the master's had been submitted. It was already over length for a master's thesis. And uh, I decided then, I really needed, because I'd been so affected by the, the whole exercise of writing the thesis over a 10 year period while I was an active parish priest or university chaplain, uh, that I needed to to take it further and then I made the decision to not to, to go for a PhD because I, I wanted to communicate this more publicly so the book is a, a more than double the length of my thesis and has a lot of material dealing with different facets of society rather than just looking all the time at the political development and I found that in that process of course quite fascinating insight into the political process because the, you can't separate out one from the other. Right. 
So you spend, did you say 10 years doing mm -hmm. your master's? So this is what, 72 to 82? Mm. I, no, it's a bit less. Eight years. I submitted the thesis in 1980. Okay, I see. And the thesis then was based more on public sources. Yeah. Um, and at some point you decided to turn it into a book. How did you end up getting all these uh, interviews and, you know, you got to, you got cooperation, you got to interview Lee Kuan Yew himself yeah. in this book. Right. So um, how did you go from masters with publicly available sources? To well, all, all the interviews, no, all the interviews were done. Not all the major interviews were done for the thesis. And oh, okay. it was partly on the strength of my being an Anglican priest and therefore potentially a fairly harmless person <laughs> who's got a kind of hobby like train trains or gardens or whatever. <laughs> I got wonderful access to a number of people. I had, for instance, a couple of superb interviews with Tunku, uh -huh. with Lim Kim San, with Gorking Sui, with Rajaratnam. And they're, they're all, you know, very open and candid. And at that stage, that was par for the course because uh, the still there was an atmosphere in the party that Lee Kuan Yew is, is by himself. And from the separation onwards, only he and Devon Nair really held together the two different streams in the PAP. On the one hand, you had people like Rajaratnam and Torchin Chai saying, we mustn't get out of Malaysia. You know, this is a serious mistake. Our hopes to become the political energy of Malaysia have been dashed. And uh, Kuan Yew felt that to a great degree. But there was, on the other hand, people like Gawking Sui, Lim Kim San saying, it's a waste of time. You know, we're being held back. We're being crippled economically by the continuance. And the only two that really could hold the show together was Lee and his trusted, his best uh, trusted confidant, that was Devon Nair. Right. But during this period, Devon Nair was still a DAP assembly mm. man. Yeah. So he, Devon Nair didn't come back till, what, 81? Yeah, become president. to president. But they were in constant contact. Right. Mm. And his wife was, uh, Dunham, was yeah. the PAP MP, wasn't she? That's right. Yeah. 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 Oh, I see. It's, it's really interesting how, how close those two were and how tightly they worked together. Yes, indeed. And how quickly it all fell apart between them. That was another story. And later on, it had fallen apart by the time I wrote the book. But I then got to know Devon very well. I'd already interviewed him for, for the thesis. And uh, he, yeah, he, it was a good interview because he, he, uh, he admitted some problems and as well as praising the successes of the PAP. I suspected he was still pretty well enamoured of uh, a general direction. And it was at the time, 76, I think I interviewed him, which was the time of the Socialist International confrontation. When, right. hmm. Yeah, when the PAP were going to be kicked out. Yeah. Before they got kicked out, they walked out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can't fire me, I quit. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, you know, I think in, in Devon's later years, of course, he expresses great, great regret and you know, how foolish he was mm. at believing in Lee Kuan Yew so entirely, mm. right? And I think from from what I've seen of his his later writings in Exile, he doesn't excuse himself. No. Um, he writes as if he was so completely seduced by Lee Kuan Yew. Yeah. I think is the way... Yeah, he, I, uh, in, he was captivated by what he saw at the time as the integrity of Lee Kuan Yew. I mean, all of us have our own standards of what integrity means. And I, I, I was a little bit sceptical that an intelligent man with his union background and his political 
antecedents could be so entranced by, the, by this vision. But he, he said that there are plenty of inconsistencies and even some aberrations in the way that Lee's carried out his policy, but it's essentially a vision for the welfare of, of Singapore, and I subscribe wholeheartedly to it. He, that certainly wasn't his view later on. Uh, so it's it's quite um, amazing to me thinking of Singapore and our ministers today of you, you know, a young Anglican priest just being able to write to ministers, say, can I interview you yeah. for a master's? You know, it's, it's not even a, a PhD. No, it's not no. even like a major publication. It's just a, a master's. And you getting that access, right? And in some cases, the, the stories you tell in No Man is an Island are incredibly detailed and intimate. Mm. And I mean, what does that say about uh, Singapore then versus now? You know, much more people... plural society, much more open to... There were several significant breakthroughs that I had. One was coming across someone who'd been involved in the bureaucracy of government, who'd known Lee as a child and from from his birth, and uh, was able to tell me quite a lot of things. And he came from a Chinese-educated background, and like, for instance, the then Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Nanta, whose wife had been a good friend of uh, Gokchu, Kwa Gokchu, had a very ambivalent attitude towards Lee, and particularly at the time leading up to 1980 when the debacle of uh, Nanta losing its Chineseness uh, came to the fore. And even someone like Lim Kim San, who said to me once uh, on the record, Lee Kuan Yew doesn't have a Chinese bone in his body. Uh, that was a somewhat uh, gratuitous insult. But he was wanting to say, we work with this man because we think he had the best ideas uh, overall, uh, but we're our own people. And Gorking Sui said exactly the same. Gorking Sui said to me, for instance, it was a quite a funny incident, you don't have to keep this, but uh, I met him just the day after he'd returned from Sydney clinching a deal to buy over a huge amount of Sydney real estate, which was owned or is in the trust of the Anglican Church, the Diocese of Sydney. It was, a lot of it was brothels and pubs, and uh-huh. King Sui, needless to say, was quite delighted at that and was very expansive. But, but he said to me, amongst other things, I have no desire to be Prime Minister. There are aspects of political leadership, particularly in the current circumstances, that really don't appeal to me. And uh, you know, I still want my life as a human being and so on. This man is keen to stay and as long as as we can find sufficient common ground, which was a very deliberate part of Lee's policy in the earlier years, up until really the 80s, to keep faith with the attitudes, the basic philosophy or approach of of his cabinet ministers, his senior cabinet ministers. And he, he said, oh, you might disagree with me about, say, my attitudes to race or eugenics, but let me also... Um, say that I agree with the general direction of policy. So you, you give me some leeway or latitude and I'll give you some as well. So that kind of, that broke, broke down once people like Torchin Chai became disenfranchised and, and a whole number of others. But these, these early contacts, there's one other aspect of my contacts during the research, or two, two that I should mention. One was getting good access to some of the speeches off the record for instance, in the period immediately after separation, when Lee was on various kinds of medication and uh, spoke really quite recklessly and wisely, those speeches were kept off the public record. 
speeches to the public union, uh, public uh, service sector and so on. And for some reason, again I suppose because I was seen as a fairly harmless figure, James Fool, the then secretary to the press secretary to the Prime Minister, gave me access to, so I had to read them on the spot. I couldn't uh, copy them or take notes, but I read some extraordinary speeches which gave me an insight to Lee's own mood at the time of separation before and after it. And that, that was one thing. And the other thing was meeting a number of people, and I'll instance K. M. Byrne by name because he wanted me to make public, who felt used by Lee Kuan Yew. There was a big case against uh, Chu Sui Ki, who was the education minister in the Labour Front government. And, uh, this is the 1959... Yeah, before 59, yes, yeah. yeah. And they set up a commission of inquiry that funds from Taiwan actually came through Catholic sources in Taiwan, had been misused. And Lee persuaded Kenny Byrne not to tell the truth. And that was to say that a, a European voice from taxation office had uh, told him of this uh, defalcation that was going on and all this misappropriation of funds. And uh, Kenny Byrne said it was a lie. It was a Chinese fellow who subsequently became very prominent in the taxation department who passed the information. And, uh, and I remember they blamed it on, they said a European voice, and then they conveniently blamed it on an official who had just passed yeah, away. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, no one could seriously, no one believed it that was in the know, but was, was aware of the situation. But Kenny felt deeply and he said, this is not a confession because you're, you, I'm not speaking to you as, as a Catholic priest, but I'm telling you, I felt deeply ashamed of myself. Again, because I was so convinced that this was the way forward, Kwan Yu was able to persuade me for the sake of the party and its success in the coming elections, we should should do this. But I met a number of other people, for instance, a psychiatrist who later took his own life, who was charged directly, no verbal, no written instructions, charged directly to administer psychotropic drugs to um, uh, Lim Chin Siong yeah. in detention. There was an official psychiatrist who gave him some drugs, but these were other ones much more powerful. And Lim Chin Siong became terribly confused. And uh, when I met him, some years later, I was astonished that he still had such fire in his belly. It was flickering flame by that stage. But here's a man that every effort was made to break him, discredit him with his fellow left-wingers, and it hadn't fully succeeded. I met him when he was working in a law office, and uh, he remains by far the most impressive figure. And the thought of him being treated that way, that he survived it severely, affected but not destroyed as a tribute. And you know, Lee regarded this as necessary because Lim Chin Siong was always, for him, the greatest threat because the most able communicator, the most coherent vision, which he, he knew in the long term wouldn't fully uh, enable Singapore to flourish after separation in the world, but was still a very formidable reality. According to his brother, after Chin Siong finally came back to Singapore, he was pretty much a broken man, you know, and that he would have his periods where it was like he was back to normal and, um, you know, he had lucidity and strength, but those inevitably exhausted him, and so he had to really ration what little strength he had, and uh, most of the time he just was physically and 
meant to be so broken from his time in detention that he couldn't function properly anymore. And, and that to do that to a person is just a, it's a crime. Hmm. And say, I was very lucky. I was able to draw from him such expressions of a coherent political vision based on the welfare of the whole society, not racially. I mean, obviously, a Chinese educated man is going to have his biases, but the perverse racism of today's Singapore uh, is not really controlled by the, the integrity. Another another person that had that same integrity was Tung Leung Hong, who was accused of all sorts of chauvinism and so on. And it was manifestly absurd. I got to know Leung Hong very well. And that's the biggest hurt that was inflicted on him to make out that he was some kind of l- low-grade Chinese chauvinist. Yeah. And Lim Chin Siong clearly had a vision for Singapore that was inclusive of everybody and wanted to see everybody flourishing. Yeah. I, I, I can't tell you how impressed I was by him for all that I could see the signs of fragility and uh, weakness. But that kind of interview fired me up to, to keep working. And uh, I, I feel a, an inexpressible debt of gratitude to him. It was a very difficult project. And part of the reason I didn't want to do a master's, uh, didn't want to do a PhD, I was offered the opportunity because the quality of what I'd already done in my preliminary work suggested that I could handle a PhD, but I, I didn't want to cohabit with Lee Kuan Yew for any longer than I had to, <laughs> mentally, because it was such a disturbing experience. Yes. Quite, at times quite buoyant and resilient, because you could see a vision much bigger than most people would ever have for the future of Singapore, but a vision so so affected and damaged by, by his own personal uh, extraordinary views and... Uh, and preoccupations. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way. That you know, to to study someone, you inhabit their mind, mm. and then that can be a profoundly disturbing experience. It was, and still is in some respects. So, um, when was the Chen Xiong interview? I don't remember exactly. I think it was in the mid seventies. Okay. Mm. So this is the whole period. You're gathering all this information. You're coming back to Singapore at, at regularly, regularly. Yeah, spending time in the Malaysia Singapore collection in Singapore and in Malaya and uh, you know meeting all these people it, it was all w- went in tandem as I went along and by the time the thesis was finished there's no really significant departure from the findings of my thesis from between the, that and the, and the publication of the book but considerable reinforcing the more I looked into the different sectors of Singapore society or perspectives coming out of the legal system or the electoral system or whatever it might be. These all reinforced rather than contradicted what I'd already found. And the capacity to marginalise people who'd been central before now proving more and more isolating for Lee himself. So just saying it works both ways that as he became more powerful and shaped the country to his image it, it also isolated him more and more is that mm. what you said mm. ah that's interesting I never thought about it that way mm. right because people like Gawking Sui, for instance, they had quite serious differences, as I think it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's in the update, but I've certainly a subsequent piece I wrote, um, the 87 arrests 
uh, were seen very much in isolation. And in fact, the ISD, when it had its exhibition a couple of years ago, there was no mention of those det detentions. I thought they were highly significant. And what I discovered was that Gorking Sui had proposed that most Singaporeans wouldn't have the moral ballast to develop uh, citizenship by themselves. They needed something like religion, and he saw religious knowledge as quite helpful. He himself came from a lapsed background of Christianity in Malacca and his friend's family. And so they, they promoted religious knowledge as a compulsory subject at school in 1982. Lee was never very happy about it, but in 1987, that was the year in which all that religious access to the armed services, to the schools, to prisons, everything was, was brought undone. Uh, the arrest of... Um, or the collapse of the New Testament church, a Taiwan church in early 1987, which was depicted Lee Kuan Yew as a devil. The arrest of some Malay extremists in April, I think it was that year. The detention of the 22 people in May and June 1987. The investigation of the corrupt practices, investigation of a Pentecostal church as the year went on, and then at the end of the year, the destruction of the Christian Conference of Asia. So that, that marked, in a sense, the end of Lee's willingness to give Gorking Sui a chance to strut his own stuff on the Singapore stage. And Tochin Chai by then was already marginalised and was very bitter about the situation. Because mm -hmm. Gorking Sui retired from cabinet in 84, mm -hmm. right? And so I guess his retirement also marks the end of that yeah. policy in many ways. Mm. Yeah. But the two went hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, Lee didn't hesitate. And for instance, uh, a Methodist who was appointed Minister of State for Education was not able to become full minister because he was a Methodist and considered to be anyway that. He was not. That was, uh, and a number of people told me that that, that was the, re the main reason because he, he, the Prime Minister didn't want to be seen to be promoting people with religious affiliations. And there was promotion of Buddhist uh, evangelical groups from uh, Japan and Taiwan to counter uh, you know, the influence of Christian evangelists. And yeah, ha having religious knowledge when English has become your main language for education gives wonderful access to Christian groups. Yeah, and, and, of course, by derivation with the Muslim groups, they have at last some, a legitimate way of influencing uh, their clientele. Okay. Um, so, kind of jumping all over the place yeah. here. Um, so, I guess we come back to the question, at what point did you, you finish the thesis, did you immediately decide to turn it into a book? or? By yeah. then, by then, my conviction was that if this is to be of any great use, I hated having all this information, you know, if I talked about Singapore in Australia, after two or three sentences, the subject would be changed because most people weren't interested. They they already knew Singapore as a pleasant tourist destination, or and you know they didn't want to know about all this. I was it was seething inside me because for a re relatively straightforward Australian male with uh, Christian convictions growing up at that time and you know growing awareness of the importance of politics, it was unthinkable that anyone in Australia could get away with that. I mean, uh, some, some had tried, but they couldn't succeed because there were too many checks and balances. Uh, Lee had successfully mastered almost all of the checks and balances and turned them to his own account. So, the, so you finish around, was it 1918? 
and then I submitted the thesis then yeah yeah but the book then comes out in 86 yeah so you, you spend the next six years then sort of doubling the volume of what yeah but by concentrating as I said on different aspects of Singapore society as it had gone my the book was really focused on the period up until the late 70s okay. uh, but then so subsequently you know, there were a lot more developments going on, particularly the drawing together of all the, the streams of control in more and more into one. I mean, they'd already been extensively after 65 when Lee had such uncontested power in the party and increasingly in the nation. These streams of, of uh, political organisation and bureaucratic fulfilment and legal system and all the rest of it, they were increasingly managed by him in an almost tactile way. And his reliance from the moment he took power in 59 on the intelligence services had been profound. And that was given uh, almost uh, you know, a strange kind of uh, freedom to exercise itself. One other paradoxical thing, I'll put it in, it is a bit over the, sh over the shop, but uh, one of the things I noticed was Lee's ph phenomenon of marking someone as intelligent and capable and bringing him close to Lee himself and then deciding after a period of time that there were deficiencies. And it happened with so many people, with uh, Chong Yip Min in the Internal Security Department. It happened with George Yeo. Many others were, were praised by Lee and then found when they got close to him to be wanting in some respect, maybe too liberal, maybe too intelligent in a very limited way, uh, not, not capable of perpetuating the vision. And the decision eventually to prepare Li Shenlong for the prime ministership, I don't think was based on any dynastic plan because the old man is very sceptical of all dynasties. Uh, but it was based on the fact that uh, Shenlong was so, so fully prepared by his education and training. So, okay, so, I mean, this is really interesting to talk about because right now we are seeing course, the, only the second transition in Singapore from a prime minister from the Lee family to someone else, right? But you were there in Singapore during the time where the succession from the first prime minister of the Lee family to the, to the first non-Lee prime minister was happening. So what, what was that like to, to observe up front? I mean, you have a lot of observations in your, in your book, but, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is how Lee openly says Tony Tan is the best candidate, but then, you know, and, and actually openly criticizes Go Chok Tong and says he needs to see a, a psychiatrist at some yeah. point, you know. And, yeah. and then in the 1988 election, campaigns for the new generation by criticizing them on the stump. So it, it seems to be a very sort of, um, you know, what's the right word? Schizophrenic approach to, mm. or maybe a sort of tough love approach to succession, but what, what was your impression? My sense was that he was pretty convinced that dynastic uh, succession didn't automatically work. So he was determined that Shenlong should not come to the prime ministership, even though he turned out to be the best qualified. Uh, it was not totally without reserve on the old man's part, and that came very much to the fore in the years before his death. Uh, so he didn't want Shenlong to succeed with the power handed to him on a platter. At the same time, he didn't want to appoint someone as Prime Minister who would be so effective that the role of Prime Minister would 
henceforth remain the only model of leadership. He didn't need any other titles than being prime minister because he already had all the power he wanted gained by both democratic means and by non-democratic means. Uh, so the important thing about uh, Chok Tong, as, I, as I've said at some point in my writing, he should be neither too good nor too bad. And there was a, a, a contingency plan, a long-term plan, that even if um, Chok Tong, for instance, had not done very well, there could be an argument to switch to an executive presidency. One of the criticisms Lee always had of cabinet government is that you're too dependent on your cabinet colleagues who, who may not be given to you by your own choice. And, uh, you know, he, he was well aware of what he saw as the flaws in all his cabinet, but by and large they got on well with each other and they, you know, torch and He's aware of everyone else's flaws, but he doesn't seem to be very aware no, of his own flaws. No, he doesn't have, because, uh, you know, this is where the analysis, I, I put in chapter 12 of my book of, uh, I call him a messianic narcissist, that is, he's totally preoccupied with his vision, which he's developed and implemented, and it's really a kind of archetypal extension of himself, but at the same time, you know, he he's very wary of what other, whether other people will truly subscribe, and he's always afraid, was always afraid that the situation would collapse, and he, so... I say he's messianic because he offers tr you know, trust in him as the way forward. It, the, there is no alternative in Singapore. We can't afford opposition parties. We can't afford others. They'll mess with you, your future. We've taken control of your money uh, to a large degree. We've taken control of providing housing and all these good things. These, this is the basis for the society and you need to re repose your trust in us. We'll prove trustworthy that you, you've got to see this as the only future for Singapore. And he, he was a, you know, a somewhat afraid what would have happened if Tony Tan had been come Prime Minister, goodness only knows. I, I don't suspect it would have been uh, very, very much better than it, or, or, or different from what happened. But he wanted to make sure that when Shenlong succeeded to power, either as Prime Minister or perhaps into the future uh, as an executive president, he would have the best counsel he could draw on from outside the parliament not just cabinet ministers or, uh, you know, the way he, he's built up the, the bureaucracy was, has been quite extraordinary. And even then there have been favourites and people have fallen out of favour. But the importance of having them and then you know, having your political leaders also well equipped. And, and as it turned out, Chok Tong was neither too good nor too bad. Uh, that was fulfilled. And, but there was no reason, especially after Devon Nair presidency had been discredited by Lee himself on the spurious grounds of alcoholism, uh, after the, the whole movement towards an uh, executive presidency who had the political clout, because presidency th thus far uh, had been you know, you, people like Yusuf Ishak or Benjamin Shears, people of no political uh, ambitions at all. And to move to a and a powerful figure. I mean, it came unstuck again with Ong Ting Chong, uh, wanting to know much more than he was supposed to know. So that, that model of executive presidency disappeared, but with it, the capacity publicly to draw on figures from outside the government sector or the bureaucracy to give advice and counsel and so on, and been replaced instead by Ho Ching, who has a special place in the scheme of things and I'd be happy to talk about that if there's, if there's time. <laughs>
Well, I guess maybe we'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I want to focus more on the eighties and what you mm. you know you witnessed. You were there on the ground. And From time to time, I wasn't yeah. living in Singapore, but I visited it every few months. And you were interviewing people. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and I think that that kind of insight most people don't have. You know, because we we tend to see the old guard as these gods. You know, and and, and uh, they. Uh, you know, trod among us. Uh, they they walked among us for a while, and now yeah. they're gone. But these were, you know, just men and women, mostly men. Yeah. You know, like you and I, and the, the overwhelming impression that I'm, I'm getting is is just how many of them were so disappointed in or dissatisfied and left. You know, in such unhappy ways, right? Or from you know, To Chin Chai downwards. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned Ken Bird, and you know we talked about Kokik uh, Sui and Devon Nye. You know, it, it seems like everyone who came up with Lee and helped him build Singapore was almost destined to fall out with Lee and, and end up bitter about everything. The, one of the most extraordinary things that happened after my the first edition of my book came out, I had contact from a number of cabinet ministers who said, how on earth did you find this material about that you've got all in your book? And I wish to God they'd come forward earlier. But I, I met with them, and under very couple of them had been Home Affairs Ministers, and they told me extraordinary stories of how they felt mistreated, or they or their dear ones had been mistreated by Lee Kuan Yew, and uh, they'd not been able to talk about it. and. One extraordinary interview at the old A and W uh, restaurant in the middle of between Booker Team and Dunnan Road in the yeah, middle. Of, yeah, and one a, a former Home Affairs Minister met me, and he sat right at the back, so no one could be behind him, and he kept watching the entrance, uh, the whole interview, and I sat facing him, and he told me the most extraordinary story of things that he felt sure had been done in, in his family life that uh, would trouble him greatly, and. Uh, uh, I, I was just astounded. But he felt able. That he recognised that I'd had access to people that I I couldn't possibly name. Most of them I couldn't name. I did name a couple uh, in the book with their permission. These people who knew damn well how the government operated. One of the first things I learned about Lee Kuan Yew's operation was he never gave written instructions if something was to be slightly untoward. For instance, at one stage there was. A drought, and he sent up planes uh, to seed uh, clouds to, to produce rain, and then to say, "Oh, this is all the work of the PAP." It didn't work, and uh, but there were, there were no written instructions. And I gathered from that moment, you know, from that time early on in his prime ministership, he refused to write any instructions. Uh, my friend, the psychiatrist who treated Lim Chin Siong, Kenny Byrne, with the incident with the uh, European Voice. Yeah. And that 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 and his instructions to the Chief Justice or how he wanted law law cases adjudicated when there were political implications, they were never given but in writing. Well, in his own autobiography, you know, he talks about all the things he learned from the communist underground, mm. and you know, not putting things in writing is one of them. Mm, yeah, uh, fixing the results of meetings and of votes beforehand yep. is another. You know. The structure of the party to create a Leninist structure for the PAP was, was something else that, you know, although he does credit it to the Vatican instead, 
Uh, and of course, that's disputed because uh, Toh Chin Chai says he's the one who came up with it. And well, there's there's a lot of dispute about you know yeah. origin stories all the time. But uh, there's no doubt he admits he learned so much from how the MCP mm. underground operated mm. and applied that to his own. And he learned so much after '65, particularly from Israel. Yeah. Uh, w one of the most extraordinary moments in my my journey uh, was. Uh, writing, uh, I think it was after, after the first edition of the book had come out, I was sitting at my friend uh, Lee Swan's uh, study in, uh, in at the NUS, uh, where he was Master of Kent, uh, uh, the, the college, KE8 college uh, there, and I was reading Noam Chomsky's book, The Fateful Triangle, and there in a substantial footnote, somewhere in the middle of that book, there was this so-called research done by the Israeli Labour Party, which is predominantly European, Ashkenazi, citing a framework for understanding superior and inferior races. And it was almost word for word what Lee Kuan Yew was also mouthing. Right. And of course, it's, I mean, it really undermines this whole notion of meritocracy and something like that, right? Or, I mean, meritocracy itself is a very it's a controversial... Pathetic, thing. pathetic measure because yeah. the first generation of meritocrats will appoint their own choice of successors who almost certainly will not be meritocrats. Yeah. They'll be yeah. there not on the basis of their merit but on the basis of their agreeability. Yes, yeah. But you know, it feels like we have passed on such so many talented people from Ho Kwan Ping who, you know, look at him today, he's built up this huge uh, you know, the Banyan tree and yeah. everything, you know, it's fabulously well. He's clearly intelligent and very talented. Yeah. And Singapore could definitely have used someone like that, right? Oh, indeed. All the way till today, Daman, of course, mm. now, as as of this recording, just left the, yes, the CEC. Yeah. You know, another wonderfully talented man. By uh, far the most talented member of the cabinet. Yeah. And yet, you know, if increasingly appointing people on the basis of loyalty rather than talent or, or some kind of army connection or whatever other yes. uh, shallow uh, measure is used yes i mean michael Barr put it in his you know in his book that the the number one determinant of elite status in singapore is some sort of pre-existing co connection in the lee family right so there <laughs> is uh, you know there is a very strong correlation there so how do we see the succession going today then? I mean, things have not been going well. We we both agree. I think we, you know, it's widely accepted. Lee Sien Lung's premiership has been very poor and now he has to hand over to... But it sounds like Lee went through extraordinary lengths to set up, you know, a long runway for Lee Sien Lung to prove himself. Mm. And what we're seeing is that Lee Sien Lung, you know, was basically a failure given all the advantages he had even in his own way attempting to set up a long runway for his successor has also failed because mm. none of his uh, you know chosen candidates inspire any sort of confidence mm. to you know confidence in, in in themselves let alone to levels of what i think people mm. must have seen these in in the 80s that's it's not even there you know I, I think the succession is very problematic. I, I mean, it'll be fascinating. Well, you know, so if we can take a step back, yep. 
you released the book in 86 and this is after you've actually got access from James Fu, from Lee Kuan Yew mm. and surely it, the book was not what they expected. No, I'm quite sure that. And an interesting story, Alan and Unwin, my fairly naive publishers, they had this manuscript vetted by lawyers in Australia and I told them that's not going to be enough. But the book was typeset by Singapore National Printers and about two-thirds of the way through the typesetting, the MD, who'd been Permsec in Home Affairs before, the MD of Singapore National Printers, took the manuscript home to read. And the next day, the whole lot was sent back free to Alan and Unwin. They had to get a typeset in Hong Kong. And it be soon became clear that the permission they'd had to use a photograph of Lee Kuan Yew official photograph, which is a very charming photograph, on the front cover of the hardback. The end papers, which depicted Singapore in 1959 and 1985, they had to be removed. And there were all sorts of other complaints. Nothing legally actionable, but obviously if the book had been released in Singapore, the retailers, the wholesalers, the printers, the publishers would have been taken to the cleaners because a different system prevailed. And uh, in fact, Alan and Unwin, after they tried to sell the book, well, they were selling the book worldwide, both the first edition and the second edition, they handed over the second edition without my permission to Crescent Books in Malaysia because none of their education books, the lifeblood of their, you know, bread and butter of their publication, could be sold in Singapore while my book was on their list. So the Singapore government's capacity to queer the pitch of dissident publishers or is endless. Every trick has been worked out, just as the electoral system has been fine-tuned. And I I think Singapore's electoral system is absolutely fantastic (laughs) because it's compulsory. Yeah. The one saving grace about Australian politics is it's compulsory. We, we have a bad enough time making sense of that. But Singapore, because it's compulsory and uh, first past the post, no preferential system, the capacity of the PAP, either through GRCs, supposedly in the name of keeping but limiting minority races, or in the, by using the, prefer, the lack of preferential system, first past the post, you just introduce another candidate into the race when you've got a good opposition figure and there's still a po- good possibility. And if you, when, when Chi Sin Juan, they reached the point where they put him into a single member constituency because they were sure they'd done enough damage to him, to de- they thought to destroy him, but it, it didn't work out. Sin Juan keeps bouncing back. Yeah. And of course there's now, uh, you know, much more, I mean, since the 80s, but definitely played up a lot more recently is the whole town council, mm. right? Mm. And how that is a mechanism for oh, yes, indeed, punishing. Yes, right? you used to you, you can't use, use the word repent, right? Both yes. will repent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, the, the all the lawsuits and the allegations being thrown about, around about um, Algerian town council have shown that that itself is also a mechanism for punishing voters who vote in opposition. Uh, so your book then was not sold in Singapore, no. never been sold in Singapore no. then. Okay. But it's never also been officially banned in no. Singapore. That's the, that's the cleverness of the policy. Yeah. Those involved in the selling of the book know very well the risks. Right. right. Yeah. Yes, punish the, the sellers, the distributors, but yeah. don't outright ban the book. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
but then um, you were able to still come back to Singapore regularly for a long time until 2012. 2012. Hmm. So what happened there? You gave an interview to Vincent Vijay Singh, yeah. and uh, I, to this day I. I, I like Vincent enormously and uh, find great pleasure in him and a few times I met Jolivan when they were together. I, these are two of the most fascinating people I've ever met. And Vincent with his background of his father being principal of RI and that sort of thing. And Jolivan being such a, a fighter and yeah. in causes he believes in, done astonishing things in what had always been a, become a fairly moribund social work uh, enterprise, everything domesticated. But uh, what happened was, because at that stage Vincent was active with um, STP, doing their kind of television or video pro programming, interviewing people and so on, he asked me to do an interview and he said, look, the situation is a bit more relaxed now, you can probably wear your, your priest's clerical collar and uh, I'll interview you. And the, I thought the interview went quite well until the moment when he said, in your book you psychoanalyze Mr. Lee, and in the whole PAP vocabulary, psychoanalyze is a word that should never be used <laughs> about the great leader. And I thought, you bastard, <laughs> excuse my French, but, um, and, and, and that was the moment. I, there was a kind of gentleman's agreement that I, I, that I would never speak publicly in Singapore about things. And they got me on two counts. One was this interview, because it was released online into Singapore. And the other, they tried a number of times to get me to give interviews for Straits Times reporters. I'd always refused. But they tried to, um, they said that, they alleged that at a meeting of F function 8, F8, that I'd criticised the, the precedence of uh, order over law. And this was straight from quotes from Lee Kuan Yew. But, you know, I had criticised the rule, the, the absence of the rule of law in Singapore, and uh, that was, it was supposed to be a private function, but they they had someone planted there who passed it on. So this interview, when it went online, immediately there was a decision made. As I found out later, I came back a month later for my next visit to Singapore, and uh, at the immigration counter I was stopped. And no one knew why, but. I was put in a little side room and I made the mistake, I didn't read the notice and I made a quick phone call to Vincent and, and a friend who was going to house me for my visit to say that I wasn't able to enter and of course Vincent and I both knew exactly why. But, but that, that was important because afterwards I was put in the wonderfully named Orwellian name of Inadmissible Passengers Lounge which is in another terminal at Changi and was filled with about 30 to 40 sex workers from Vietnam and the Philippines without the proper papers, they're all girls, and uh, 20 or so construction workers from Bangladesh. I was the only one there you know, for clearly political grounds. And when I was, while I was in detention, I, I was for 24 hours I was held there. I refused to sleep in the air-conditioned compartment provided for me because I said, oh, I hate aircon, I'll freeze to death. So I, I was up the whole time. 24 hours later, I was put on a jet, uh, jet star flight back to Melbourne. The next day, I was lucky enough to leave and uh, come to Malaysia. Oh, wow. <laughs> I got a cheap flight with AirAsia. That was my introduction to them. So it was uh, like that. But because I'd let Vincent know, know about it, 
he raised questions and the Straits Times a few days later published a picture of me doing the interview and it was made very clear that clergy particularly should not interfere in Singapore politics. So my own, my own view was it was basically to punish Vincent. Uh, just to clarify, uh, when you say a gentleman's agreement, like how did you know this agreement existed that you would not talk about? I was warned, I okay. was told by, okay. yeah, by people who said, for God's sake, don't say, if you're asked to give interviews, just say anodyne, nice things about Singapore, but don't raise any political questions. You have no standing, I have no standing in Singapore. I was a visitor, given the courtesy of being able to visit. And of course, part of that was so that ISD could uh, check up on who I was with. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or want to say, or you feel like anything underdeveloped? It's been the most important thing intellectually that I've done in my life and I found it uh, profoundly disturbing and yet I also feel very grateful to have had the chance uh, to study Singapore politics in such detail and whether or not I've kept a good sense of proportion about that, it's a highly subjective matter. Uh, so th that was the uh, it's been the most disturbing thing in my life. It's taken me totally out of uh, my comfort zone, both intellectually and academically and personally, to study a man who, in my wildest dreams, I couldn't have imagined ever such a person existing. Uh, so thank you very much, Jim, for your time. Thank you. You've been most generous in you know, talking with us. Thank you for your book and thank you for continuing to love Singapore so much even despite all that our government has done. Yeah, the people of Singapore are the most marvellous, I've made the most marvellous friendships in my time there for which I'll eternally be grateful and the difficulties of writing about Lee Kuan Yew I've, I've outlined, I'm still affected by that but uh, I hope and pray something good can come out of it in, in the debates and discourses that need to take place uh, because the tr present trajectory with unquestioned and unchecked is not going to lead to anything very positive. It will need a lot more participation by Singaporeans. And that was my conversation with Jim Minchin, author of No Man is an Island. The book is hard to find, but surely worth a read if you can get your hands on a copy. Also worth reading is Michael Barr's Lee Kuan Yew, The Beliefs Behind the Man, published in 2000. These two books are the only two academically rigorous and even-handed books on Lee Kuan Yew, and I highly recommend them both. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative Southeast Asia Dispatches next week, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com. Subscriptions start at just $52 US a year. That's just $1 US a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead.